Good morning. Good to see you here today. Thank you, Justin. Laura, beautiful job. Take your Bibles. Turn with me, if you would, please. Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21. Do you believe that Jesus is coming back? Do you really? According to a 2010 Pew Research Center survey, when U.S. Christians were asked the question, do you believe that Jesus Christ could return in the next 40 years? 27% replied definitely. 20% replied probably that Christ could return to the earth in the in or before the year 2050. Conversely, 39% believe that Christ will definitely or probably not return within the next four decades. Among us here, I would guess that nearly 100% believe that Christ could return. I wonder how much that belief affected our lives this week or at all. For that matter. Sometimes I think we as conservative Bible-believing Christians believe that we have such a handle on this thing of prophecy that they, we think we have it all figured out and we don't have any reason for concern. We have our charts and our tables detailing when each major part of the prophetic future will occur. So much so that we no longer live in a sense of constant state of expectancy and readiness. The most complete prophetic teaching that ever came from the lips of our Savior was the Olivet Discourse. It was recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it began as Jesus answered the disciples' question found here in Luke chapter 21 and verse number 7 says, teacher, but when will these things be and what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? There are a couple of terms we need to be familiar with as, as we begin a study of this part of the book of Luke. The first is apocalyptic. It comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, which means revelation, referring to the end of the world. It is a part of the Bible that is a revelation of God, of his plan for the world. The other, per, the other term is eschatology, which is the study of end time events. God in his wisdom has made it that we will be dealing with end times events in Sunday morning on the book of Luke at the same time that we begin dealing with Daniel's revelations in the second half of the book of Daniel. To understand prophecy, we need to understand the principle of near fulfillment and future fulfillment. Near fulfillment has to do with the application in the present time. One commentary puts it this way. As a prophet speaks to the people of his own day, he looks to the future. He sees a time of judgment coming, a righteous disaster that will strike his own people if they do not repent. But this, this disaster is set against the backdrop of the last of all days, 
when God himself will come to judge the world. Listening to the prophecies of judgment, both near and far, is something like looking at mountains on the far horizon. From a distance, it's hard to distinguish the mountains from the foothills. They seem to blend together. But once you reach the foothills, it's easy to see that there are higher mountains still to climb. And so it is with apocalyptic literature. The prophet sees beyond the foothills of the approaching judgment to the far mountains of the last judgment of all. First of all, I want you to see as Jesus addresses the destruction of the temple. Verse number 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart. And let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance, that all days which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. For there will be great distress in the land and the wrath upon this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive to all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the time of Gentiles is fulfilled. The question that began this discussion was when Jesus and his disciples were leaving the temple. His disciples expressed admiration for the beauty of the temple. It was then that Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple. And as we noted last week, to those disciples, the destruction of the temple was synonymous with the end of the world. They could not conceive or envision a world in which the temple of God in Jerusalem did not exist. This was one of the places we will see biblical prophecy in conjunction with near fulfillment and future fulfillment. Near fulfillment is a fulfillment in that present age. This prediction seems almost unbelievable. This destruction of the temple is going to be so complete that Jesus said in verse 5, the day will come when not one stone will be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Remember that some of the temple's massive foundation stones were the size of boxcars, 67 feet long, 18 feet wide, and 12 feet high. The smallest stones weighed between two and five tons, and the largest stone of all is estimated to weigh 570 tons. In verse 20, Jesus describes Jerusalem's destruction in detail. The sign of his destruction will come when armies surround the city. When this destruction comes, it is a time to flee and a time to hide. He says those who are in Judea flee into the mountains where they will find safety. And those who are in the city should leave. And those who are in the country should not try to enter the city. Jesus described the destruction of Jerusalem in advance and reported that Jerusalem would be surrounded and that the carnage that would follow would be devastating. The most vulnerable people would suffer the most, pregnant women and nursing mothers. 
Jerusalem would fall and would be destroyed by the Gentiles, in this case Rome, and would remain fallen until the time of the Gentiles was fulfilled. Just 40 years after Jesus said this, there was a widespread Jewish revolt against Rome. As a result, the Roman general Titus laid siege to the city of Jerusalem, surrounding it for almost six months. And the results were widespread starvation and death. When the Roman conquest of Jerusalem in AD 70 was complete, Josephus, the Jewish historian, records that over a million Jews were killed and another 97,000 were taken captive. However, Christians in, in Jerusalem knew what Jesus had said and they obeyed him, fleeing across the Jordan River to the city of Pella. It is thought that very few, if any Christians, perished in the fall of Jerusalem. It is said that the fall of Jerusalem, the last surviving Jews of the city fled to the temple because it was the strongest and most secure building in the city. Roman soldiers surrounded it and one drunken soldier started a fire that soon engulfed the whole building. The ornate gold detail work on the roof melted down in cracks between the stones of the walls of the temple. And to retrieve the gold, the soldiers dismantled the temple stone by stone, fulfilling Jesus' prophecy. The destruction was so complete that today there is difficulty even deciding even where the temple once stood. The dual fulfillment is seen in that Jesus predicts not only the judgment executed upon the, the Jewish nation and the temple on one hand, which was the near fulfillment, but also for the prediction of final judgment at the end of the age, which is the future fulfillment. This far or future fulfillment is in the age to come. Luke clearly shows how the destruction of the temple in AD 70 is distinct from, but related to the destruction at the end of the age. It would seem that Luke sees in Jerusalem's collapse a preview but with less intensity of that which will in the end be like. He wants to make clear that when Jerusalem falls the first time is not yet the end. Nevertheless, the two falls are related and the presence of the one pictures what will ultimately happen in the second. I want us to look secondly at the prediction of the Lord's return in verse 25. And there will be signs in the sun and in the moon and the stars and on the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and waves roaring, men's heart failing them for fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth for the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud of glory. Now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift your eyes up because your redemption draws near. The awesome signs in the heavens will bring terror to the lost people of this world, but hope to those 
who trust in the Lord. The Lord's appearing will be sudden, glorious, and with great power. He next tells the parable of the fig tree. Verse 29, he then spoke to them a parable. Look at the fig tree and at all the trees. When they are already budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happen, know that the kingdom of God is near. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away, but my word will, be, will by no means pass away. The single purpose of this whole prediction of the fall of Jerusalem and the end of the world was to make sure that the disciples were ready. The basic idea in this, the last, the last and the shortest, one of the shortest of the parables is simple. If you watch nature, you know what is going to happen next. If the trees are budding, spring is near. Awareness of the signs that Jesus has given will give an awareness that the coming of the Lord is near. So what is meant when Jesus says, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until these things take place. What generation is Jesus talking about? There are almost as many opinions as there are commentaries. Did Jesus mean the generation alive when he spoke those words? Some say that Jesus was referring to the fall of Jerusalem and that many of the people listening to him would witness that. But that can't be the answer because Jesus said, that they would witness all the things that take place before they pass away. Others maintain that he means the Jewish race which survive these things. This is based on the idea that the word generation can also be construed to mean an ethnic group, meaning that there would, the Jews as a people would not pass from the earth until God's plan had taken place. But I think the most likely answer is that Jesus did not refer to his own generation, that of the disciples, because if he did so, he was wrong. And we intuitively know that that can't be true. Jesus is perfect. He is the son of God. So Jesus most likely saying that the generation alive when the beginning of these signs come, that is the generation that will see this to the very end. The argument is that the generation alive that sees this, these are the ones and it will take place within the span of one generation. This much we know, everything that Jesus said was true. And everything he said about the end times will take place exactly as he said they would. Well, I want you to look forth at lasting instructions for a scary world. One word seems synonymous with our life in the 21st century, terror. Ever since what happened in 2011, 2001 on 9-11, and subsequent years we have seen terror, terror, terror. I read an article that said, it, it is a gloomy moment in the history of our country. 
Not in the lifetime of most men has there been such grave and deep apprehension. Never has the future seemed so incalculable as at this time. The economic situation is chaos. Our dollar is weak throughout the world. Prices are so high as to be utterly impossible. The political cauldron sees and boils with uncertainty. It is a solemn moment of our troubles. No man can see the end. When do you think that was written? Last week, perhaps? The state, that statement appeared in the October 1857 edition of the Harper's Weekly Magazine. There always have been and will always be troubles in our world. But Jesus gives his disciples some instructions for living in anticipation of his return. First of all, in verse 33, he says, you need to build your life on God's word. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. It's not just what Jesus said about the end of time is true, but anything and everything he ever said was true. The promise of God found in the Old Testament, according to the prophet Isaiah, was the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. As our world gets more and more unstable by the day, the only true thing on which to build your life is the word of God. First of all, build your life on the word of God. Secondly, guard your heart. He says, take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day will come on you unexpectedly for it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. We must take heed or pay attention because there are certain things that will make for unpreparedness, carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of this life. Each of those things can make us unprepared for the day of the Lord's return. They make the heart weighed down. The word that is translated carousing is also translated dissipation and some of the translating and surfing in others. But basically it means a hangover. It is what happens, the unpleasant effects that inevitably fall, the heavy consumption of alcohol. So carousing and drunkenness are not so much two different things as they are two different ways of describing the same thing. Some people deal with their fears about the future and about the stresses of daily life by getting intoxicated. Rather than finding their comfort in Jesus, they try to make themselves feel better or at least feel nothing at all by drinking or using drugs. Some who are going out and getting wasted or and drowning their sorrows at home are not ready for the second coming. The second thing he warns us about, though, is the cares of this life. Jesus is saying that being weighed down with the cares of this life are just as much a hindrance 
to being spiritually prepared as getting drunk. The cares of this life are simply the anxiety that keep us awake at night. I am sometimes amazed at the things that make me anxious and the things that keep me from sleeping. They seem so weird. But it can be things like our job, our schoolwork, our family, many things. Such things can weigh down one's heart and make a, become a snare or a distraction to our spiritual preparedness. And finally says, keep watching and praying. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Just as those who listened and obeyed Jesus' voice and his warnings concerning the destruction of Jerusalem escaped that by being obedient, those who listen and obey Jesus today can escape the horrible destruction that will come at the end of the age. The most important question when it comes to the second coming is, are you ready? In the spring of 1980, the blue skies over Oregon began to be obscured by steam rising from Mount St. Helens. Geologists warned that an eruption was imminent and residents living near the area were ordered to evacuate. State troopers and forest rangers entered the area with loudspeakers blaring, danger, evacuate the area immediately. Flashing road signs were erected, uh, were erected around the area saying, warning, 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 evacuate immediately. There was an 83-year-old man named Harry Truman, no relation to the president, who operated a lodge on Spirit Lake only five miles from Mount St. Helens. He laughed at the warnings. The officials argued with him to leave, but when he stubbornly refused, he was granted permission to stay. He said, nobody knows more about this mountain than old Harry, and it wouldn't dare blow up on me. On the morning of May the 18th, 1980, Harry awoke and probably followed the habit of feeding his 16 cats and then fixing breakfast for himself. At 8.13 a.m., Mount St. Helens exploded with the force of 23 megaton atom bombs. The top 1,500 feet of the mountain disappeared. The sound of the eruption was heard for 600 miles. The air was instantly heated to 600 degrees. Old Harry never heard a thing because a shock wave of energy traveling faster than the sound of the speed of sound radiated out from that blast it was followed by a 50 foot wall of mud and dirt and it flattened everything within 150 square miles it destroyed enough trees to build 200,000 three bedroom homes the eruption was followed by a cloud of ash that covered everything to a depth of 50 feet. They never found a trace of Harry, his cats, or his cabin. 
I wonder what may have went through his mind if he had even a millisecond to realize that he had gambled and lost. He had heard the warnings, but he had not heeded the warnings. The Bible says at any moment, the Lord Jesus could return in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye. God has placed warning signs all along the road. Warning, repent immediately. For those of us who have heeded the warning, we will escape his judgment against sin. But some people are like old Truman, never repenting, laughing at the Bible and refusing to heed God's warning. Let's pray. Father, it's my sincere hope that everyone in this place has heeded the warning that they have repented of their sins and they've asked you to save them and accepted Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. But there's even one here this morning that is not 100% sure that they've established a relationship with you. Then I pray that you'd speak to their hearts. I pray that they'd heed the warning. And I pray, Lord, that they might accept the escape that you have prepared for all of those who will accept your son as their savior. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? We're going to have a hymn of...